0: Because game writing has that that fun stage where you're brainstorming creative ways of accomplishing something. It's like, oh, this is cool. And then it has the, all right, to actually publish this, I've got about 50,000 words of shit that I need to write that are not fun.
1: Welcome to RPG Ramblings with Jeff Jones. This is a weekly show exploring the various details of the tabletop RPG hobby through discussions with interesting people. This week, Ralph Mazza joins me. A brother in need is a brother indeed, Or, at least that's what I say. Ralph has been part of the RPG scene for a while and has a mathematical mind that is fun to pick and strong opinions that are fun to prod. If you want to hear the full interview, become a patron. For $1 a month, you can hear more of Ralph's expositions from this week's episode at least up to the point that the internet decided to censor him. It's been a two-week dry spell on podcasts. Time to hitch up. Sisters and brothers, it's time to get rambling. Hello, Ralph. Jeff. We we just spent uh, a good number of days going to Game It was a great trip. It was You know, we've talked uh, science, we've talked uh, politics, we talked game theory, uh, but there's one thing I really wish I would have went a little bit further, pressed a little harder. The question is, is there a point there's too much cheese on a sandwich? (laughs) We were in Wisconsin. We had the toasted uh, brisket and cheese. It was more toasted, it was a toasted cheese and brisket, but. Because they're in Wisconsin, I think they put three times the amount of cheese necessary for a toasted cheese. But you thought it was just fine.
0: As a general rule, unless you're choking to death on the cheese, it is not too much cheese.
1: <laughs> so there's no like, so, yeah. you know, assuming that the cheese is, is tasty, we're not, we're, you know, that's, that's a given. So there's nothing about ratios. It's just that cheese by itself is good. Anything you put with cheese is, is, is okay, too. So there's really no worry about ratio of meat to cheese or cheese to bread or potatoes to cheese.
0: You could make an entire sandwich out of just cheese.
1: That's true. Yeah, I've been there. And what you're saying is the only thing that it's a limiting factor is physics. That's right. Not the cheese.
0: Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You have to actually be able to swallow it without dying.
1: Yeah. So, anyway, you've got a a, a history. I've uh, as I was, uh, I was when I was on the hike just a little bit ago. I was thinking, <clears throat> I think you're the Rumple skin of game design. Because back in the day of the Forge uh, and days after, you came up with a number of books. You and other people. You've Universalis. Was it Blood and Sand? Was that the other one? Blood Red Sands. Blood yep. Red Sands. There's a, there's another one as well. Is there?
0: uh there was a quick start for robots and rapiers that never made it to a final published uh game
2: a quick start
0: yeah i had uh, i had playable rules they were kind of formatted in uh you know a little intro booklet um had them at uh, at gen con uh but it never uh, never made it to full publication
1: yeah it's kind of hard but uh so anyway you've your your experience and my experience were a little bit different. I mean, you went on the track. I think you your claim, and I'm not – I still haven't done the calculus that was it that I probably only really enjoyed 30% of the games I was in. Is that what your thought was?
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> based, based on your commentary, uh, your uh, your debriefs afterwards, 30% fun and 70% complaining.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think I'm the same way with TV shows and movies. <laughs> Yeah, so, but anyway, what I thought was interesting is uh, one of the games I I, I didn't get to see you playing, uh, but you end up meeting this fellow who was, um, had the whole layout. Was it, um, uh, was it like the, uh, was it Greek maniples? or was it, I can't remember what the, what the layout was.
0: Yeah, that was a uh, Persian versus Macedonian battle. So what that was.
2: So which, which side were you on?
0: uh we were the Macedonians, and he took the uh the Persians being experienced with the system and uh it was it was good it was a good system it was uh, kind of a a hack slash further development of the command and color system um some really good uh, really good ideas uh to kind of develop that that system and it was a a nail biter and ultimately, we uh, we won. So that's always the the best way to go.
1: So did they Plus use the victorious? Did they use the, did they use cards for that at all?
0: No, he went with some of the the variants that were uh, developed for the Game of Thrones version, which had uh, like command tokens and uh, an eight sided dice. So a little bit different than the original command and colors, but.
1: I didn't know there was a Game of Thrones
0: version. Yeah, it's actually probably the best of the Command and Colors. Um in terms of uh of evolution of their rules. They they really got it right. So
1: do you get little wooden blocks and little stickers and you gotta put them all together?
0: Uh I believe that set actually came with uh plastic minis.
2: Amazing. The actual uh yeah.
0: Yeah. He,
1: I got one of the sets and I tried putting all the stickers and they started wanting to come off and it was just, it's just a mess.
0: Yeah, I've done, uh, done my share of stickering blocks,
2: but. <laughs> yeah, so
1: uh, it's kind of interesting because the fellow had a, was he had a, a master's degree. He, 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 was, he was a professor at a college or I think he's retired, isn't
0: he? Yeah, uh, Steve Fratt. Uh, was his name he was uh, I believe it was Trinity College. He was a professor for a lot of years, done a lot of interesting things uh, reenactor uh, so yeah, a lot of a lot of interesting background that he then puts into his uh, his game designs.
1: yeah what I thought was interesting the little bit they got to uh, listen to him talk was that I think the idea is you know the idea of reenacting, I think as a means of exploring to try and understand how things really were like I imagine getting beyond just the theoretical level is just like okay, what, what really seems to make sense?
0: Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting uh, combination of factors, right? Because if you if your reenactment assumptions are wrong, then you're basically just training yourself on something wrong and and you know reinforcing those. Those incorrect notions, but if you've if you've got sort of a your reenactment based on period documents and some solid history, and what you're really trying to do is maybe take some of the written word that made sense to people at the time. Maybe it involved skills or ideas that we just don't have really in the modern world anymore. And you try to try to do that. You know, what does that actually look like? Um, I'll, you'll see that with a lot of, you know, uh, 18th century, you know, homestead reenactors. You know, how how do you actually build a log cabin uh, right. without modern tools, right? And and what did they mean when they used these kind of terms and and uh, phrases that we don't use anymore? So, yeah, it's a it's a really interesting uh, way of digging into history. I've never really thought uh, uh, about using it for getting a better grasp of command control rules in a war game but uh but it kind of makes sense that if you've uh, if you spent some time actually trying to uh shout orders to people on a recreated battlefield that you'd get some insight on what that might actually look like on a real one
1: <laughs> right we have problems enough even with the with the
2: communication we do have today let alone imagine back then let alone trying to communicate stuff across uh,
0: many miles too. Yeah, that's actually key to a lot of the, the tabletop war games. Is a, there's a lot of different ways gamers have tried to recreate the friction of command. And some of them are, are more, more playable than others. Some of them are more uh, enjoyable than others. But it's all an attempt to, to realize that you can't actually control everything that, is, that you'd like to be able to control.
1: Well, just imagine you've just rolled up random things for your generals. Maybe one of them's like a speech impediment or, or <laughs> it confuses left and right. I mean, <laughs> this disadvantage. he's pretty on everything else,
2: but uh, righty, tidy, lefty, Lucy just leaves them confused. <laughs> My right or your right? <laughs> yeah, I suppose they don't like the people with those problems uh,
1: get to be generals commanding people in the field.
0: Eh, probably not in the uh, the day of professional armies you might have to might have to go back to when all you had to do is be born noble and then you could be a could be a general
1: the uh, it kind of makes me think of i forget the general uh that uh lincoln was very put out with like if you're not going to use your army would you like give it to me or i can really put it but basically it was he was doing some sort of barb about it. like if you're not going to use your army then like you know give it to somebody else who will or I can't remember what the, what the barb was, but it's just like, he was sending orders. You need to do something.
2: And he's like, no, <laughs> I'm yeah, happy right here.
0: probably McClellan. He's, is one of the, the more uh, reviled uh, union generals, but I, I tend to think that uh, that if I were a union soldier, uh, he's the general I would have wanted because
1: he didn't uh, take his men
0: into battle. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he, he did he didn't, uh, he didn't take a lot of risks with them. He didn't uh, try to, uh exploit a position just by throwing uh throwing a bunch of a bodies at it and, and seeing what happened and so you know probably uh correctly judged for having left a lot of opportunities uh slide past him through through inaction uh but at the same time if, if you're a soldier uh i think you'd rather that than uh than be part of the brigade that got chewed up uh trying to uh to get that little extra victory yeah, I was reading was years ago, Paul Johnson's Modern War and in his
1: view, he was being British, was that the US, World War II just we would just 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 throw so much men and equipment. It really wasn't a lot of times with these taking of islands and different things, it really wasn't strategy. It was just manner just pouring enough people into an
2: area to to take it over. Um, I guess that's kind of our way of doing things.
0: Yeah, I think there's there's always those transitional periods in war where you uh, you're starting out fighting with the last war's doctrine and figuring out how it doesn't quite work with current technology or current <laughs> situations, and then having to relearn and develop new doctrine, and then the next war you get to do it all over again. Uh, I think that's one of the the perhaps biggest differences of, of the modern military is how much time they dedicate to, to trying to project the next conflict, uh, rather than just refight the last one.
1: Well, I mean, just think about right now with what we're seeing in the Ukraine with the use of drones, it it's yeah. really, I, I'm sure this was Syria, it was started, but this is seems to be like a whole new level of, I'm sure we're just getting, we, I mean, I just, the, the military, I mean, just getting started and in, in ways of using and misusing uh, these things, but it, it's incredible.
0: Yeah, and I think we'll we'll really start to see, you know, uh, information warfare, communication warfare. Right, if one side starts to rely very heavily on unmanned vehicles, that you need a, a good signal to be able to control you know what does that do for for the other side ability to to jam or even hijack those signals how do you protect against that so yeah it'll be a, a very interesting uh future battlefield
1: yeah and i think with it kind of was science fiction i don't think i played many games but i remember seeing um i think it was um diaspora where they would have like ships for that would just be specialized for um electronic countermeasures but you know is kind of interesting to think about we're maybe getting to that point where you know those types of things and creating ghosts and shadows and whatever weird things you can do with technology um you know being a thing right with world war ii i think the 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 british a lot of times would do all sorts of fakery where they they created a town they blew like as a port or something they they inflated a bunch of items and made it look like there was something there when it really wasn't so the germans had something to bomb and feel good about
0: yeah there there was a, a lot of those tactics leading up to to D-Day to kind of conceal where the actual army was and how strong it actually was um that they they did with uh you know some painted plywood and uh and various uh various things to fool aerial reconnaissance but uh yeah i mean that 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 sort of thing goes all the way all the way back through history um you know George George Washington was a was a big proponent of uh Sort of devious tactics and, and spies and, and espionage and intelligence gathering, and you could trace that all the way back to the, the Romans and, and before them. So it's just going to get uh, really the the biggest change I think in that is is the technological aid for those sorts of things, but the the impulse has always been there.
1: Yeah, it's like with, it's kind of interesting like with satellites. I think there's been kind of a a an agreement that we don't mess with other people's satellites unless there's some sort of like warfare going on. And now, you know, I think Russia is even threatening to, to mess with our satellites as we're potentially utilizing stuff over airspace. So it, it's kind of interesting, like, you know, we've kind of thought about war going into space, you know, maybe indirectly, but, um, and I'm sure all country, many of the military groups have, you know, weaponized satellites preparing for the day, but, we really haven't really gone into that level of war yet.
2: It'd be interesting to see where that will go or what could happen.
0: Yeah, I, I tend to think that the, the first nation that actually tries to gain a militarized monopoly on orbital space will trigger a global response that will, uh, that will not end well for for them or or probably anyone because nobody can really afford to give some other power uh a monopoly of the ultimate high ground
1: right but I guess if it's over i guess the question is like you know right it's it's but it's if it's military use of satellites over a person of sovereign nations country that's where it starts getting i think kind of you know a little bit interesting though I think right now we are but you know, there are satellites over maybe not using it directly for military, but now we're things are getting pushed. becomes comes
2: shove. It's, it's kind of interesting where some of this is the thoughts are going. Yeah. I think you know, you know, spy satellites
0: and communications interception and, and those sorts of things have been, uh, they've, they've gone on for, for decades, but I think the, uh, the next step will be, you know, uh, orbital weapons and, and, uh, you know, strike capability. And and that's where, that's where things have the potential to get really ugly.
2: Yeah. So you're talking about launching things from space to, to the ground.
0: Yeah. Launching them, dropping them. I mean, (laughs) once, once you have the ability to, uh, you know, move around in space reliably and reasonably inexpensively. There's a relatively infinite supply of ammunition, you know, like uh, reactor rods that are no longer used. In- <laughs> yeah, I mean, it does. It doesn't even have to be. It could just be a hunk of rock. I mean, there's there's enough space garbage in orbit that it uh, you could you could start dropping some of that stuff. You start that-
2: recycling. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Targeted recycling.
1: Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting, and it's also interesting with games where it, it, it's, uh, you know, for, for science fiction games, um, like for role-playing games or whatever, even kind of going back where it's like, you know, there's some stuff that seems kind of obvious now, but it doesn't necessarily get put into games, and it's like how, how it, it's kind of interesting, like, for instance, like Traveler came out, and it's kind of based on, you know, a seventy sensibility. You know, so you had a mainframe. Do you, ever, you play Traveler? Have you? Long time ago. Yeah, so you have you, you buy a mainframe. The mainframe can hand, handle so many programs, and by programs, they're of certain size, <laughs> and the more the better the program, the more room it took up. So you had to. Ch- it's kind of like the days of I only have so many floppy disks I can only put in, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know communications, and, and I mean we have uh, you know it has. Uh, you know, anti-gravity, or not anti-gravity, but it's got uh, artificial gravity for ships. It's got like crazy technology there, but but you know, some of the fundamentals, obviously, you know, people missed as far as you know, like the internet and communications and and the uh, reduction of sizes of of computing and where it goes, and you know, the viewing of robots is kind of being clunky. Where now it's like, I think once they come out, they're gonna they're going to be more human-like. So you know, but now you kind of push that forward. It's like, you know, we're, we're looking in a, in a future where, you know, drones are going to be much more popular. And, uh, as far as playing any sort of war themed or battle themed game, it's, it's, it's probably going to be a much different look than, you know, squads and, you know, doing certain types of activities. It may just be <laughs> more people sitting in a, in a trailer, an air conditioned trailer, moving things around than, than actual bodies.
0: Yeah, it'll look like uh, like BattleBots arena or something. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. I was I was reading a pretty interesting article about how how people making predictions about the future tend to over rely on extrapolating what they know and missing sort of the 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 novel or the new. And the the one example that stuck with me was there was a uh, a uh, a work of of fiction, but you know, what we'd call science fiction, um, from the late 1800s that was talking about, uh, you know, steam revolutionizing, uh, travel and, uh, the idea that, you know, you get the steam power down on a personal level. Uh, <laughs> and, and what they came up with, uh, the illustration that was in this book was essentially a steam powered horse pulling a carriage. Right, they couldn't right. quite make the leap to to an engine in a vehicle. What they knew was horses pulling carriages, right. so they just made the made a the horses steam powered horse. horse, steam-powered horse. <laughs> yes. uh, which, which, you know, I think uh, I think a lot of what we do today with our science fiction, uh, and yeah. you know, even with your traveler example, is uh, is basically the equivalent of of coming up with a steam powered horse. Well, I guess it would be in a sense if
1: right if you're using heat to create steam to, to to turn something but it is kind of interesting to think about like a, a you know our personal power levels st- like you know it it is so you know it is you know you think of the things that we have today like like a computer <laughs> it's like, like how would you power i guess it would have to be some sort of large you know physical binary you know uh, who's that guy babbage like some yeah, sort a big, of babbage giant machine.
0: babbage machine yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is hard and i you wonder why people it because i think that's just it and, and people have mentioned like i think with uh mount gladwell said that <clears throat> you know everything's obvious now you know when you look at things you're like well how these people mess up back then and these all these bad decisions but they're like you like when you're in it you, it is not obvious it's only obvious afterwards
0: yeah hindsight's always twenty twenty um and it's it's 2020 because you you choose to see it that way i mean even even afterwards you rarely actually know you just assemble the narrative that makes sense to you or or supports the angle that you're you're going for um but yeah you know, there's you can read all the history books you want and that's that's never going to be an accurate reflection of what happened it's just going to be a a recreation of what whoever it was writing the story thought was important or relevant.
1: You're going to throw me into an existential
0: crisis. (laughs) We don't actually know anything. (laughs) All knowledge is essentially unknowable.
1: Yeah, basically, every decision we make is irrational. Everything we do is irrational. (laughs) We assume it's rational, but it's not. (laughs) We just
0: find meaning in irrationality. Reverse engineered justifications are <laughs> what separates us from the animals. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> right. But you know, the nice thing about them, they don't have to justify. They don't have the, the guilt that they have
2: to assuage. They just do it. I don't know. It's kind of crazy. It's kind of crazy. So uh, we, played in, we did play in a
1: game. Uh, we did share one, I think, RPG together. Um, mazes.
0: Mazes, yes.
1: From uh, yeah. from ninth level games, ninth level games from Kobolds Ate My Baby, a, a game I saw over at at uh, Winter War, many, 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 for many, many years,
2: and I never, ever played it. I never did either. So are you tempted to if you stop going, would you would you want to play it?
0: Uh, maybe, I mean, I don't know that I'd seek it out seems uh seems a little on the on the sillier side for what uh, what i normally play but.
1: <laughs> that's a little too silly the uh <laughs> before the more serious just uh random people going through dungeons taking stuff but <laughs> right right <laughs> I, yeah i got you i know i really get you it's uh because i went and well, i was at game or at, uh winter
0: war i played chain mail glad i played chain mail the, the new re-release version from a few years back or the old original 70s version? The old original, but again, I think to to go all existential, um,
1: I don't know if I really played the original. I just played what a guy ran that, that <laughs> I thought was original. But anymore, I don't know. You've, you, After our, our game with mazes, I, I'm questioning everything. <laughs> and uh, it was definitely a game I was glad I played it was good to see, you know, like the origins, not true, the, you know, I maybe mean, not the origin, but it was definitely one of the, the factors in the origin and seeing how it worked. Um, but boy, it was, I kind of failed to understand as a war gamer, how anybody found it that interesting.
0: There's, there's a lot to be said for, um, the best that was available at the time right i mean you go go back and watch old network television and compare <laughs> yeah. it to a good netflix show or a good hbo show and you know what why how did we spend so many hours watching you know tgif uh television from you know cbs or whatever it was that that had that i mean you try and watch some of that stuff now and it's it's just awful uh but it was the best available so
1: my, yeah my son was wanting to watch 80s horror movies so i was I don't watch horror movies, but I was like, oh, I want to watch Halloween. That was a, he starts watching that. I come down, I'm watching. It's like, this is terrible. This is just terrible. I remember it being so good. It's like, no, this is, they're all bad. All, all those movies are bad. The, the, like the, the the soundtrack is bad. The music is, doesn't fit. It's too loud with this wrong things. It's just like.
0: Yeah. never Never go back and revisit your, your nostalgic loves it does not matter how much you love the a-team it is not <laughs> worth watching today
1: yeah there was a show I, I thought about somebody said no it doesn't hold up i'm like i'm just leave it alone just leave it alone it's just uh, not worth it. in Ultraman, i think what got me was Ultraman. i remember I, I saw commercials for it when i was a kid and then i finally had a chance to watch it when i was, I was at, at a blockbuster and i got home and i just like this is just terrible So yeah, keep it straight. So anyway,
0: (laughs) but I think that applies to games too. You know, I mean, even in 1978 when we were playing D and D, we knew that it was a hot broken mess. But it was something that none of us had ever experienced before. It was amazing. Uh, It was wondrous. Um, It was terrible, but it was amazing. And so I think that's that's why any anybody who played. Uh, played d d in the in the late 70s through you know most of the 80s we all had our our notebooks full of house rules or three ring binders our our composition you know trying to trying to fix and most of those early subsequent games that came out uh you know whether it was RuneQuest quest or you know whatever other uh, uh games that you were playing was was just somebody's attempt to fix what they thought was wrong with with d d or or tunnels and trolls or whatever was their you know introductory game. And so I mean it's it was it was always a thing that could be improved on. And so a lot of a lot of that, you know, whether you're talking the old Hex encounter war games from the 70s, I mean so many of the war games today are just head and shoulders better than the equivalent if from 19 73 or whatever. Um, but that's you know, that's the same with anything, right? I mean, you can you can you can go to a to a car show and, and fawn over and, and enjoy tooling around in a Model T, but nobody wants to commute to work in one. Nobody.
1: <laughs> no. Well, it's funny because uh Zach was in a game. Uh, so a friend of mine was playtesting a game, it's a five E game is using A D and D rules. So Zach was kind of uh but that was kind of funny. And so, and when the guy uh, had left the table for a bit and, you know, from the players, like, you know, trying to understand what to do. And they're like, no, he's playing by, you know, these are homebrew rules. This is not the actual. And I think there was an argument between the people at the table. And I told Zach, I said, no, you played the real AD&D. Because real AD&D is really just, it is house rules. Like, that's all it had to be. Every but everybody's nobody's wrong. Everybody's right. That's the way it's supposed to
0: be played. However, you play at your table, that's how it's supposed to be played because it's messed up. It's and the, just, well, the the funny thing was, is that was true of the early editions of D D and it drove Gary Gygax crazy. I can remember reading articles uh in Dragon Magazine where he was just beat people up for playing wrong and and I can remember sort of the lead up into a uh, a d and d that was going to be the the one rule set to rule them all you will finally know how to play d d properly just follow these rules and and what came out was such a a ridiculous collection of <laughs> just whatever happened to be in his brain at the time and wound up in the on the page uh that it didn't solve anything. Everybody just went back to picking and choosing what they, uh, what they wanted and, and jumbling it together. And I can remember when we first encountered AD and D, um, we didn't even realize it was the start of a whole new game. We, you know, it was like basic expert yeah. advanced. And so, so for, you know, h- however long, probably a couple of years, you know, we were playing a jumbled up combination of, of all three of those, uh, uh, uh rule sets which were not in any way shape or form meant to be compatible
2: no but but they but but you made it work
0: yeah and it and it worked because you you, you kind of had to do that to make any of it work to begin with so it wasn't it wasn't particularly harder to get uh beck me rules to play with ad and d rules together than it was to just figure out how to get Me rules to work in the first place. Right. Um, it was all, it was all an exercise and, and there was so little in any of those books, um, except maybe for, uh, maybe, maybe the Moldvay edition is, uh, is the exception, uh, of, of actual dis- explanations for how to play, right? There was a lot of, a lot of this is, this is this and this modifies that and this is how you do this procedure but the the actual flow of what a, a cycle of play is supposed to look like was pretty pretty absent uh, and so you had to invent all that anyhow you know what what are you rolling for when are you rolling um, pretty much everybody I knew we'd roll a d20 under an attribute you know roll under your attribute um, I I don't know what addition that That appeared in but i don't think it appeared in any of the any of the rule books that we actually had that was just a thing that seemed sensible to do so we did it um and so once you once you do that and i think that sort of do-it-yourself mindset uh is is why the that part of the hobby even today uh still has such a big do-it-yourself mindset because you it it started out as a necessity but it was a necessity that was fun so people just kept doing it
1: yeah, it kind of made me think of that Somebody post on Twitter, it was like basically like, you know, if you've, if you decide, if you decide to change, make changes to the game without having first played the game, you know, like you're doing it wrong. You've never played the game. And, and some guy kind of from her remark, but I thought it's, it's kind of interesting. Um, the, you know, and I kind of agree in some ways, you should probably play it first before you start modifying, but, but I, I can't leave well enough alone. But I think that's what makes it fun. I mean, there's a variety of people. It's like, it just begs to be changed. It just begs to try things out. It's It just begs to say, let's take stuff from one rule set and throw it in
0: another and see what happens and see what, what breaks. <laughs> yeah, I think that's why people are still playing pen and paper role-playing games, even though computer RPGs have been around for so long. And, and now the graphics are amazing and you can do all kinds of uh, things. Except change the stuff. Right. Yes. If you're if you're if you're not a if you're not a skilled modder, uh you're not going to be uh you know creating new quests for your, your favorite uh computer RPG the way you can for your, your favorite tabletop RPG.
1: No, and I think the thing is it seems to me, because I don't play it for a long time. It's like it seemed like for the longest time. Um you either had games that had walls, but everything in the walls was fairly interesting. Or you had stuff that didn't have walls and it was very boring and just wandering around trying to find stuff. Dude, I'm sure it's much better now. I haven't really played for 20 years, but I just remember for a while there it's like it's an open world, but man, being on a horse and just it just clomping along for 12 minutes to get to another town. There's I find no joy in that.
0: Yeah. Well that's 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 true of uh of pen and paper RPGs, though, right? I mean you can you can do a sandbox campaign and and take the sandbox so seriously. That as players, you're left wandering around not really knowing what to do because uh, the the DM didn't put a uh, a flashing question mark or flashing explanation point above his uh, his NPCs to, to know there's somebody that you need to go talk to for you know some plot hook. So yeah, it's uh... and then there are other times where you get fed every little detail and you're you're basically just in an interactive novel. Yes. <laughs>
1: it is, it is hard to, I mean, that's just it. I mean, there's different expectations people have and different styles of play. And, and I think, um, I think also depending on the length of the adventure you're on. So if, if somebody's doing a published adventure, we'll say adventure path, it's, it's definitely, you know, going to probably be forced to, 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 to create a shoot for everybody to go down. But also,
2: I think if things are too open, sometimes people have problems having their characters find meaning in what they're doing. Yeah, I think
0: the, the tendency to think about role-playing as if you're playing characters from your favorite fantasy novel. Right I mean, whatever you going all the way back to appendix n, right? There's all these stories that you read and you loved, and now you get to play them in the game, except that's not actually how the game works because the stories things happen that way because there's an author in right the, in the role playing game, there's not supposed to be an author, but some people take that role a little too far, and you wind up essentially just uh jumping through hoops in. Someone's wannabe novel.
1: I've been pretty fortunate. I have not been through that, but I've I've known people who have. (laughs) And I think that's that's definitely a hard thing, you know, for adventure design, and that's definitely a tricky thing. But you're right. Some people, um, I guess it's probably akin to writing a video game, uh, but you've scripted everything, so like the game is actually you watching these things unfold. You don't really do it. I guess probably not too much unlike uh i guess it would be different than dragon's lair <laughs> you'll have a few choices <laughs> remember dragon's lair oh yeah you burned quite a few quarters and i never yeah. made it to the end i i didn't burn that many because i was just not that good so i just uh <clears throat> i just learned early on i was better off uh spending my quarters elsewhere
0: but that's um, kind of what we were talking about at at game hole is is it really boils down to situation and there's so many adventure products and dungeon products and encounter products that are out there these days i mean we saw what three different titles uh in the dealer hall alone purporting to be you know the book of encounters or the book of of dungeons or or whatever and what a lot of those products completely miss is you know setting information that's that's nice npc information that's nice you know uh, weapons and magic items and spells and that's nice but what what you really need to run the game are situations right and if you have you know loaded situations right you kind of you kind of wind them up and then the players go in and interact with them um that's how you get an adventure that's not scripted that's how you get um an adventure that's not on rails uh, you just have a situation that is going to evolve in a certain way, um, and then the players go in and and start throwing monkey wrenches and things and take it in, in their own directions. But so that's that's what I think the the big I don't know if it's a gap or a, or a need or that's. That's if I were going to buy a product, I don't I don't need to buy a book full of full of maps uh, or little stocked mini dungeons that says, you know, there's three kobolds in this room right. uh, and a gray ooze in that room. Um, you know, give me the situations, because if you have good situations, you could drop those into any game. You could drop them into any genre. Right. There's no significant difference between a party of D&D adventurers and a party of uh traveler adventurers when you're planet side interacting with a situation, you just file the serial numbers off and instead of being a, a tavern keeper uh they're a, a dockyard worker right but you just um, rearrange the situation and can and can drive drive play from that so
1: yeah, I think to go along with that, I think there has to be uh there needs to be tension like every character every situation there needs to be multiple points of tension
2: and that whenever a character interacts with it there may be some that they resolve but they may be creating other tensions
0: yeah it i mean it really does i mean uh uh having a having a sword and a stone and a bunch of people trying to pull it out is is a situation but um unless there's something that's going to happen and certain people that want it to happen one way and certain people that don't want it to happen that way and consequences to how it actually happens, then it's, yeah, it's just a, it's just a boring situation.
1: When you think of like town, like
2: Lord of the Rings, it's like, you know, like the, uh, the Shire, that's a boring place. You know, a lot of those places in themselves, they're,
1: they're, they're neat to watch or read about, but to actually go in and interact, it's like, there's nothing there but it, you know when there's you know like moss isley is much more interesting cuz there's just a bunch of scoundrels a lot of things happening you got to watch your back because you just don't know what's going to happen you got the empire who's who's uh who's pro- who's there uh, to uh create complications for your characters because you're probably not operating you know according to the law you may have some you know hut uh people involved too that are you know, involving people maybe your characters care about or NPCs, and all the NPCs have their own little things going on. That you know, that should be a prime opportunity that once a player starts interacting, you know, those springs start unwinding and releasing.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I I see where you're going. I don't know if I entirely agree with that. It might be this would be a an interesting contest for the comments, right? Take a yeah. take a situation that would exist in Moss Isley, file the serial numbers off, put it in the Shire. Oh, yeah, that'd be fine I, I, with that. I think, I think you could totally do that. No, you could. I, I think, just mean I the, shire, the shire as it
1: is. You know what I mean? Like, there's no – the tension really is uh, – Bilbo, everybody thinks Bilbo is just uh, – he's, he's, he's lost his mind. That's the only really tension. You know what I mean? There's no there, – you don't really see the conflict. And it's not intended for that. But, you know, I'm just saying is – but the Shire could be interesting. And it could be very interesting if, if the stakes were um, – if it was a game about social positioning. And
2: whatever in the Shire, uh, that could be interesting. But I'm just saying, in of itself, the Shire's not interesting. I don't think.
0: Well, the it existed to create the baseline. You know, that's that's what right. was at stake.
2: Right. This is right. this is normal
1: life. This is the common people. And it's it's a contrast to what was going to happen later on. I mean, right it it served a, it served a book for the purpose of the book. It served its purpose. I'm not saying I'm just saying, but for a game, just throw people in the Shire. It's like, you know, I've, there's a guys kind of writing some stuff, and I'm like these locations are nice, but, but what does that really mean to the characters? It's just like you put people in there. It's like just people being put into a, an area. And it's maybe the maybe the trees are cool, and maybe the you know. Uh, the people are kind of neat, but there's no tension. Like there's something that should be coming in with a, with a you know, it's like with a Western, you know? Yeah. So it's like a Western guy comes into town. There's tension. There's situations that are building up and, you know, interesting situations could be in multiple directions, not just one, but uh, you know, that's to me, I guess what makes it fun is just the well, fun, but it, it drives interest when, when things
2: start happening because of people making choices. Cause you pick a side, you're, you're, you're creating, you're creating something's going to happen.
0: Yeah. That's, that's the whole, the whole deal with having a, a, a charge situation. It's really just the, the, the relationship between people and how that relationship changes based on decisions that get made. And unless you're just doing a raw dungeon crawl to rack up experience points and, and gather gold pieces, um, that kind of situation is what you you need to make a game interesting,
1: yeah, because I think the games are right, so the games it seems like most games are you you play through an adventure and you get stuff, and then you play another adventure and you get stuff, but you know it it, it seems like you know to me it's like with with um, one of the problems with Star Wars as far as kind of the implication is you're traveling all over the galaxy, so you can leave consequences behind pretty easily. And even with uh with playing adventures, a lot of times you're going to, you know, play one adventure for like first to second level, then you'll play a different adventure. It's gonna be in a different town. And there seems to not be um a good way of of making those those choices that players make count. Or make the reward in a way that's more narratively rewarding, like, you know, the townspeople being grateful and maybe, you know, seeing the, the, the narrative benefits to, to their actions too, not just the consequences, the, the negative consequences.
0: Yeah. That, that all comes down to, to adventure design. And I think it's, it probably could trace it all the way back to the, to the idea that those the early adventures uh, were designed for, you know, convention play. Oh yeah and And even developed into you know, kind of tournament play, where you'd have different parties going through the same dungeon and who who did best. and And so you you there's a certain artificiality about published inve- uh, adventures that um, I think is largely an artifact of their origin and what most people use them for Uh, and what you hitting on exactly what you said is is the reward for beating an adventure is usually some form of portable wealth right you've got gold coins in your purse or you've got a magic sword in your scabbard and so now you can move on right but if the reward is embedded in the community right? Your, your thief is now a crew boss for the local head of the thieves guild. They can't just, right? Your, your cleric has achieved name level, and now they're the bishop of the cathedral, right? Your, your fighter is now, uh, the, the guy, the, the armsman who's training, the, the prince's son in the art of war, right? Those are the kind of rewards that real people if dnd land was a real place uh would consider rewards but most of the time what you get is here's ten thousand gold and a magic sword
1: but be interesting you know it could be that you know the the designers a lot of those people early on maybe that was their home games the the modules were just something to do at conventions but we got those modules and we just treated them like this is the way we're supposed to play so I wonder if just there was a whole series of unintended consequences that led, led to this.:
0: Oh yeah. I mean, Pen, Pendragon suffered from that enormously in that most of the published adventures actually violated the rules of the game. <laughs> uh, and, and taught a whole bunch of Pendragon players to play the game wrong. <laughs> because the the adventures would be full of things like make a roll for this make a roll for that check on this right cuz that's kind of how you write adventures right you got to you know, give them something to do when the when the players do this roll for that and and when you read the actual rules to pendragon that's that's not how those systems were meant to work but a lot of people were taught to use them that way because that's how the adventures use them the adventures But, were but you're wrong. saying published adventures
1: were doing this? Mhm
0: yeah like like in 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 Pendragon, uh, there's there's virtues and vices right yeah. that are that are opposed to each other. And the idea is if you act a certain way, you're free to act however you want. If you act in a way that reinforces one of those virtues virtues or vices, you get a check, and then you check to see whether that number goes goes up or down uh, during the winter, but unless the number gets above sixteen. You still have 100% control, right? If 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 you're a if you have a a 15 in uh, in a vice, you never have to roll against that vice to see if you you've succumbed to it. It's 100% player choice. You could choose to roll if you just wanted to, you know, see what happens for yourself randomly. But the the game master can't make you roll. Once you get to a 16. Then you're actually earning glory because you're renowned for that trait. You know, people, you're the, you're famous for being proud, or you're famous for being chaste, or you're famous for being whatever. Um, so you're earning glory for it, and now the game master can force you to roll. Uh, but the published adventures were just saying, you know, things like, oh, you had a long night on watch. Roll energetic to see if you, you know, wake up in time. It's like, no, that's that's not what that is. It's did you did you get up? Yes, then you check, you put a check mark. You don't check it as in make a roll. You check <laughs> the box uh to see if you've leveled up your your energetic. Um so yeah, the the published adventures taught a whole generation of people to play Pendragon wrong.
2: That's I, I think
0: D D adventures pretty much um, you know maybe, maybe not as dramatically mechanically wrong, but uh, but yeah, probably procedurally wrong in terms of what was. What was the point of play? Yeah, and from what I've
1: heard, it sounds like you know they played in long campaigns, um, and
2: you know, and I think, but we we didn't. Did you play? Did you have long campaigns when you were uh, playing d d
1: back in the day?
0: Yeah, well, because because I couldn't afford to buy any published adventures, so the only published adventure mm-hmm. I had was the the Isle of Dread that came with the uh, that came with what whatever box set that was, the expert set, I think. Um, And then later, I think I picked up the Giants and we ran through the Giants. And then, you know, a friend of mine had White Plume Mountain. So I think we rated White Plume Mountain like 15 times because that's all we had. Uh, But other than that, we we made up our own. So, yeah, I wound up having our own. Yeah, people. People uh, today, they'll uh, they get all nostalgic over Greyhawk or or the Forgotten Realms or you know whatever. They're oh, look at this map, and it's you know the Greyhawk map, and it's so great. And it's like, but Greyhawk meant nothing to me. I never had a Greyhawk map playing. You know, I've been playing since 1978. I never had a map of Greyhawk. I never had a a map of the Forgotten Realms. We just made our own maps.
1: We didn't really. I don't think we 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 played, but it wasn't. It was. It wasn't a world. It it really there was no thought one way or the other. It was just wherever we're at was wherever we're at. Like it, it there was no continuity, and there was no expectation of. I guess kind of like Planescape in a way. It just well, now that I've ever played Planescape, but just like, you could you could play, you could play you know one module, you'd be in one place, and you play another module, be completely different with three quarters of the same characters and. You know the rest be different character. I mean, it just was it was just a it was just almost like
2: extended uh it's almost like extended um convention play, yeah, yeah, i I could see that ours ours was
0: a little different because we didn't we didn't have really those things to to go off of, so you know like my my touch point was you know Lloyd Alexander's pridedan stories and you know the map at the beginning of the book and so that's like that oh i need a map and it needs to have places on it we need to go back to those places and the people need to be from those places uh, so that wound up being how i would
2: make the make the game yeah we were never that resourceful at least i wasn't i don't think any of us did but i think the other thing too
1: is we had a number of people we kind of wrote, rotate uh who was doing games as well or who was running the games so there wasn't really a consistency there either.
0: Yeah, we we'd do that too if uh if if you were if you'd been running the game for a while and you really wanted to turn as a player, you'd uh, you just figure out a way to kill somebody because once a character died, that that player had to be the next game master. So <laughs> <laughs> I will kill your character eventually and then you will it'll be your turn to run.
1: <laughs> and the person that nobody wants to GM his character all he survives. <laughs> it's like the uh that's 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 kind of funny um it's interesting i don't know the other thing is i'm not sure what rules we ran by because i was listening to a podcast where they had the they, they called it the prime directive where that if you if you bought a game back in the day if you bought the game you're the only one that can run it and so if, if, you, if you were the d and you're always the D&D guy. But if somebody bought you know, Call of Cthulhu, then they were the Call of Cthulhu, dude. And nobody else could run that game. And then that's how they divided up the, you know, that. Where I think we didn't
2: really do that, but we, I think we did have people that bought certain things and would try to promote certain things. I think a couple of us ran Traveler, though. I think that was probably different. So, so what other games did you run back in the day? Besides D&D?
0: One of my favorites is the pretty obscure, unless you're into old role-playing games, uh, Bruce Galloway's Fantasy Wargaming, the evocatively titled Fantasy Wargaming. That was the (laughs) the name of the the book, um, which is an extraordinary look at a branch of the hobby that didn't go anywhere. But it's kind of fun to imagine where the hobby would have gone if that had been the baseline game, so, so i don't I don't know anything
1: about it. so what's the premise, and
0: how's that different well the the idea the the goal was medieval realism, right? So it's like he would have he probably would have loved Harn. I don't know if yeah. he ever saw Harn, but uh, he probably did uh, but what what made the game very interesting is uh there was there was a subroutine for everything, right? If if you wanted, you know, skills worked a certain way, and there was a table for that. And it was it was very old school wargamey kind of tables where uh you'd add up a bunch of factors which would give you the column on the table, and then you'd roll your percentile dice and you'd read um the results off the table. And it was a very cumbersome way of doing it, but the ultimate result was very powered by the apocalypse right so if you if you think of a powered by the apocalypse table right uh where you're going to roll plus whatever and you know you get a you get a hit or a partial hit or a fail or you know uh, that's basically how these tables were set up with this result, you get everything you asked for with this result, you get a success, but there's nasty consequence with this result. And so there's these results on a table it's just very, very cumbersome to get there. Cause you had to add up, um, you know, almost burning wheel style from, from paragraphs of, of modifiers, plus three for this and minus one for that plus two for the other thing. And you'd get to a column like column 17 and then, then you'd roll your percentiles and see what you'd score. And then, uh, whatever your percent chance of failure was if you succeeded on the roll that's how many experience points you got so whatever it was you were doing you could earn experience points but you know if you had a a a 50% chance of of failure and you succeeded then you got 50 experience points um, but if you had an uh an 80% chance of success then you'd only get 20 experience points so you'd have to keep track of, of that and the the magic system was very interesting in that it was all uh, correspondences, right? So if you if you added up all the stuff that you wanted to do, the level of difficulty would be so high you would fail spectacularly. So you had to get the difficulty down by a, a, essentially like spell components that were related to the spell you were doing. So if you're doing a fire spell um you know you might say okay the the leo is the zodiac sign associated with fire so if i cast the spell in august you know and noon is the time of day associated with fire so if i cast it uh and you know sunday is the day of the week associated so if i cast it on noon um at noon on a sunday in august i that just made the spell easier and if I, if I have this kind of wood, if I make a wand and the wand has this kind of wood, and it has this many metal rings made out of this sort of metal. And, you know, you had to build from this table, all related to getting the degree of difficulty of the spell down uh, to a level that you could actually cast it and That's so you, champions. <laughs> but you, you wound up inventing, uh, inventing these rituals, right? Like in, like in the books, yeah. right? You read this book and there's all always you know by the by the light of the moon you have to you know sacrifice the white sheep and you know the blood of the virgin and the you know crushed acorn powder with a hemlock drink and you know all that stuff that the that they're doing in these big rituals you essentially had to invent a ritual um based on these tables of of stuff um and it it really gave Uh, It gave significance to things like if you had a silver dagger in the shape of the crescent moon, that mattered because there were certain kinds of spells that silver was good for, that a dagger was good for, that a crescent moon was good for. So if you had a silver dagger in the shape of a crescent moon, that became a focus that you could right. cast those kinds of spells. So, uh, it, it was, it was a very complicated, some people have even said completely unplayable, but we, we actually played several campaigns of it. Um, but yeah, and enjoyed that one a lot or, or fought with it a lot as, uh, as the case may be. Uh, but I still have my book, which every, every margin just about is full of pencil scrawl, uh, trying to, to make sense of it.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting because it does seem um, like a narrative way of of doing what the hero system did
2: Do you ever, you, Have you played champions?
0: uh i uh we attempted to make characters, said this is the worst thing ever uh and and uh quit. Yeah, yeah. We, we, that was one, one of the few games I remember we, we rage quit. Uh, we rage quit champions and played. Uh, we went and played uh, heroes unlimited and uh, villains and vigilantes instead. Out spite. And you didn't like either one of them, but you said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They were both pretty messy games, but they were better <laughs> than playing, trying to figure out champions.
1: But It's, it's a similar thing. It's like, you want to do all these things but you can't necessarily do all those things. So you, you, you say, you know, it's limited so many times a day or it's, you know, whatever. It's very similar except I think what you're talking about was more systematized. And, and it was, if you're talking about like, if there's things that's consistent through it, like if the list is always like of these things or it's always the same, like it's the same list of you're choosing from, then it makes it more, um, I can see where it makes it more flavorful and interesting. And then there's like the dagger bit. It's like you hear no you know, hear news about that silver dagger over this that's the shape of the crescent moon. That that's and there's only six of them in the world. And if you get that, it's gonna make casting a whole lot easier. Your magic user is gonna make a push to the party,
0: like we must have this. Yeah, and and what 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 was particularly great about it is you wound up having uh not so much. Squ- magic but by default you kind of had schools of magic because what you had in terms of what your wand was made out of or what material components you because you had to track your actual material components right if you're going to use a, a feather you had to have a feather so whatever whatever you had on you because the spell spells were all free form you could literally cast any spell you could imagine at any time but you were limited by what your wizard actually had which of those spells you had an actual chance of success to cast. And so you you become specialized, like I'm really good at fire magic because all my stuff gives bonus to fire magic, but I can't do crap with illusions because I don't have any of that stuff.
1: I think the thing is what you're pointing out is how the components can be interesting. And I think the components could have been interesting, narratively interesting in AD&D and later, but nobody wanted to deal with it
0: yeah there was there was no particular there was no system for how to use it there, there was no um i mean there were there was lists of them and some of them had prices on the on the thing where you could buy them uh, but there was no there was no particular motivation to use any of it and so mostly it was just it was overhead it was unrewarding overhead much like much like weapon speeds or uh weapon modifiers versus different armor types, you know they find very, very few people who played a, D and d and used all of those different things that were were in the book
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it I think the thing is it's like it it I would imagine if you if you look at the higher level, I don't know this for a fact, but i'm I'm just kind of curious now at the higher level spells, the imagine the components were costly and consumed. And that was a means of draining uh, monetary resources. I imagine the earlier stuff was probably less so, but it would be yeah. kind of cool if you say you want to cast a spell, you you know, you're going to have to get this thing, and there's not that many of those things, or it's heavy, it's you know, it's it's uh, you know, a big, you know, you know. Um, I always say it wrong. Whatever the, it starts with the B. It's and you put the fire and it with the fire. is it called? A, a, a prazier.
0: Oh yeah yeah. I mean it, it it could have been used that way, right? I mean you 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 could certainly you could certainly make interesting adventures around questing for spell components. Uh but there it, it just wasn't uh, there wasn't anything fun about it, right? There right. wasn't any I mean the the only support you got was shopping lists, right? I mean if you if you well, have theoretically if if the if the component was like a uh the hair from the mane of a unicorn you could build a adventure to go find a unicorn around it but uh yeah it, there was there was just there was no there was no joyful reward for right. engaging in the rules so my my uh my feeling with with rules is 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 uh if you're if there's nothing enjoyable about the overhead then it's just that it's just overhead right because you could you what you
1: could do is you could say uh the normal spells are done this way but there are ritual spells and it will require an 80 pound you know uh, razor to be able to do and you have to have this sort of incense but when you do it it'll affect a square
0: mile uh, you know and it'd be like yeah <laughs> let's yeah and that and that kind of stuff happened like in fantasy war gaming but the the one of the reasons it worked is because fantasy war gaming was about different stuff, right? Dungeon, Dungeons and Dragons was about going down into a dungeon or out into the wilderness, right? You were adventuring, you were traveling, and you're going from place to place or going into places. So all the stuff you had to carry with you, um, the the fantasy war gaming, the way it encouraged play, uh, because as you leveled up, you actually leveled up in society, is having the ability. I mean, spending. Wait, waiting eight months to the exact right time of year to cast a spell that would affect 20 square miles was actually a thing that made sense to do in that game, whereas I don't remember ever playing a game of of D and d where that would have made sense to do
1: the, the problem is though it puts a humongous load on the on the GM. They're like, okay oh, yeah, yeah it did. <laughs> what month is it? <laughs> what day is it? what's the lunar cycle what's the, it's like what's the position of pluto versus venus uh, i mean whatever it may be it's just like,
0: I'm just like okay yeah and the, and of course this was before today a lot of that stuff would be easy today you could go out on the internet and find out exactly you know where mercury was and where the you know everything was on a date and you know 1623 or something you could find out uh all that stuff you know what you know, what, what day of the month was a Thursday, you know, but you can, we couldn't do that in 83 <laughs> no. you know, or whenever the heck we were playing. No. So how'd you do it? Um, Just roll d D20. <laughs> like- yeah. I mean, we m- made up a calendar. I, I, uh, I made up a calendar that was a sort of a normalized calendar so that there was the exact same number of, of weeks in every month. And they all started on the same, you know, and so it was, Uh, a much easier to use calendar Uh, the moon cycles mapped then to the annual cycles without needing convoluted stuff so Uh, but yeah i had a i had a whole calendar that would would tell me what it was you're dedicated
2: for this i mean you're you're all in yeah it was it was
0: it was cool um we played i think three different campaigns of uh, of that one we did uh top secret we did
2: pendragon Later on, when that one, when did Cyberpunk 2020 come out, early 90s, yeah, probably early 90s, we did a lot of Cyberpunk. Yeah, and I think we've we've talked, well, we have talked before, but uh, I think
1: what I find amazing is there's times past where you've you've named a number of games that you've played. And I would have thought there would have been, because I played a bunch of games, like a bunch, we played a lot of different games. But there's not that much overlap between us. <laughs>
0: <laughs> even back then there were too many games to actually play today. Yeah, it's
1: ridiculous. like as a show there was a lot of games back then. Because I mean we we and I I start thinking even with conventions and such of things I've played. I've it's it's astounding what's out there and what we've not played. I mean, it's just it if you just take even just well, I don't say legit, but even like you know, just I don't even say major, but you know, there are just you, you talk about the, the bigger publishers and
2: how much stuff's out there that I've never even had a chance to play. Uh, it's it's pretty astounding. Do you ever play Tune? Yep. Yeah,
1: yeah we didn't did. We did play Tune. Did you make it work? Because we didn't make it work. I don't think we understood how to make
0: it work. Uh, we played uh a number of different times, but they were always they were always like one offs. You know, like this is this is the time we're playing and we're doing kind of the roadrunner thing, or this is the time we're playing and we're doing kind of the wacky racist thing.
2: So, how old were you when you played this?
0: Man, I don't know. I'd have to I'd have to go check to see when it came out because it would have been like when my whenever my edition was new, that's when it
1: was. Because I'll tell you, it just we I don't think we just understood how to make it work. I don't know if. I might be able to now I might be old enough now that I can understand how to make a cartoon.
0: Yeah. We just, uh, we just played it like a cartoon, right? I mean, if, if Bugs Bunny would do it, that's
1: right. Yeah. It's it's um, it is astounding um, of all those things that were out and all those things are available. And, um, but
2: um, and I, like I've not played, I don't think I've ever played second edition D and D.
0: Yeah, I I've played it. It was not one of the ones I played a ton of AD and D, uh, and kind of skipped over mostly. I think, in fact, I think there were a couple of the the D and D Splat books that we wound up getting, and and more or less just playing in the version of AD and D that we were already playing in. Um, but yeah, uh, not so much. I never ran Second Edition.
1: I think I played in a couple, but I never ran Second. I was never. I played a little bit of third edition. I'm a, not a fan, but I did get to play some Castle and Crusades, which is apparently a a cleanup of 3.0. It's supposed to be
2: pretty good. But I just go back, and then, like I mentioned, it's just that um it just Magic users are just so broken.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was I was pretty excited when when 3.0 came out because a lot of the things that they did in 3.0 were things that we had already done in our ad and d house rules um like we had gotten rid of by that point um all of the silly saving throws right. and uh, uh we wound up just doing attribute-based saving throws which is more or less what 3.0 did they just create mash them together into three instead of six but um it kind of unifying the uh, unifying the modifiers so oh yeah they that all have the same sense. modifiers uh, so a lot of that stuff we had already done. Uh, so I was initially pretty excited by 3.0, but then then it it took it took the least favorite part of D and D for me, which was shopping for shit, right? Just going through, I have 200 gold pieces and I need to buy this and I need to buy that and I need to buy the other thing. And they so they took the the, the worst part of D and D and made all of character creation shopping lists. Yeah. You know, what What combination of feats, right? It's like I I hated figuring out, you know, I need the iron spikes and I need the lantern and I need the flask of oil and I need the iron rations and I need all this stuff and I need to write it on my sheet. I hated that part. And so now with third edition, that's what character creation is. I need what? Great cleave, and then I can get like mighty blow, and then I can get some other stupid shit, and then I and then finally I'm a decent fighter.
1: Well, then all of a sudden you're ready to do the thing that you want to do, then you realize you messed up, and you should have picked this one. This should have one picked this one. other
0: thing, yeah. And that I, you, I rem- you
1: need for that thing that you want. It's like
0: yeah. So they 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 took. They took my least favorite part of D and D and made the entire game that. So I, I quickly fell out of love with uh, with three point. And then we had friends that that played Pathfinder, and I can remember I can remember coming very close to rage quitting that game because I made this very cool character, um, and I picked a feat that was absolutely perfect. Had no idea what it did. I just picked picked it from the name. It was like some, something to do with the sun and the whatever the the Pathfinder sun. But it was like in the end, w- when I figured out what it did, it was like the equivalent of giving you a plus one during certain times of the day under certain restricted conditions. And I'm like, what the schlitz? Just give me a plus one. What what is all the? So it's like virtually it was a feat that you could virtually never use despite the fact that it had a really cool name that completely fit with my character concept. I, well, like, I'm, I
1: am glad that there was no other games afterwards that you could pick talents and feats that just basically were no good. Most of the time. I'm glad that never carried over to the, 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 uh, the modifius 2d 20 games. I'm glad <laughs> that it never carried over to the star Wars. Uh, yeah. FFG. I'm glad that it never happened.
0: <laughs> it's, I I don't I don't know if this is accurate or not, but I I get the sense that that's where computer RPGs infiltrated the tabletop, and you know the the online role playing games where you'd sit there, or uh, you know even things like Skyrim or or Gothic or um, uh, you know those those games where your your character was just tons and tons and tons of little pieces. You know, you you'd get to like level 50 or level a hundred, and you'd have to, you know, get all of these little little power-ups that in a computer, it's pretty easy. You know, I also don't really care for that part of computer games, but it's not that big of a deal. I'll I'll click this and click that and click the other thing, and then you're done. But when you put that into a pen and paper role-playing game, it just turns it into a freaking slog. Well, the problem is when you pick something and and all
1: it is is like you you found out is you you see a list of things, you say, this is cool. But when you read the fine print, it just says, cool. it says you're a chump. Yeah. <laughs>
0: and, <laughs> it, 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 boil, it boils down to not, not trusting the players, right? If you give them too much cool stuff, they'll break your game. And you're the game master and you need to be in control of your game. You can't have, you can't have players breaking your game. So you got to give them stuff that sounds cool, but doesn't break the game. At which point it's now you're just just overhead without without reward
1: well but even in, in, in that case but i mean even with is strange with a member of the 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 conan it's like you could be a certain character but you have this feat to be like a um i think it's for like a, what's our might be a provocateur for, but you had to be in your own home country and i mean like all these series of situations would probably never be situations your character would ever be in you know, if if your power was like getting mobs to you know get all 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 crazed and frothed up, I mean that's a great power. Like, yeah, <laughs> but it's only you know in certain situations in your own kind. It's like, who cares? Like, why why
2: don't you just give me a skilled writing instead or something? You know, like that. But yeah, it's not my uh, not my favorite uh, favorite trend the uh the shopping list of character powers um i don't know i think it depends i think yeah yeah because the problem is
1: i think what i was thinking about doing was writing a bunch of shopping lists for superpowers for talents for <laughs> a year zero engine thing <laughs> so maybe not um uh, but uh the uh yeah, I get what you're saying, and i I think I think the problem when it gets too long is it, it it's hard to make a decision. It it, it creates uh, analysis paralysis, and then sometimes it's like then there's so little variation between them. Like, is there that much meaning between a lot of them? Like, could you just not
0: simplify it? Yeah, I think you know, for me, if uh, if you have a way mechanically of if you're if you're really good at something this is the mechanical be- benefit for being really good at something if you're really bad at something this is the mechanical penalty for being really bad at something and then all your character sheet needs to be is essentially a list of things you're really good and really bad at you don't need a paragraph of rules no. for how how being good with Attacking multiple people with a two handed weapon and it works like this. And there's an entire paragraph. All you need to know is I'm really good at attacking multiple people with a two handed weapon. And in this game, really good means when I roll, I get this bonus. And then if that's the situation and it's a situation I'm really good at, I get the bonus.
1: Yeah, I think, I think, right, what you could do. So I guess let's put it this way. So let's say, for instance, attacking multiple people. Which is basically, I think what fate did is if you're fighting, I think, a mooc. any damage you do past the first one just applies to the second. It may be, I may be mixed up my games. But you could also say somebody's really good at it. You already have the rules in how if you do really good against one you'll go against another they could get a bonus against that or like a d6 or adding to that or are you saying even that's more than what you really want you just really want to know a character's good at a thing and and they just either get a little bit better at the thing they're good at or then just leave it at that
0: yeah i mean what what you were describing is, is is taking a a rule that already exists in the game you know if if the if the way it works in your game is is these types of, of opponents have very few hit points and you get to take your damage and spread them over however many characters until you run out of damage to spread. If that's the way the rule ordinarily works, then if I'm particularly good at that thing, then I'm particularly good at doing that so I but get bonus damage. But maybe, that's what, damage a, or, but maybe
1: that's what a fighter does. Maybe that's the rule. A yeah. fighter is anything that he, he does for damage if he exceeds the hit points of one opponent gets transmitted automatically so there's not a but that just comes with being a fighter so you're saying you'd rather have something like that rather than somebody picking a feat for that
0: yeah I mean it, it, the, a, a feat in and of itself right I mean if you go back to AD&D you know you could define all of the advantages that a ranger had as a collection of feats or you could define, you know, the the fact that elves got plus one to hit with swords and bows and and had infravision. Uh, you could define those as feats. It's not so much the existence of a, a little nugget of rules. Call it whatever you want. It's the fact that now the entire game is driven by having a shopping list of those that you have to optimize. That's that's the part I'm not interested in doing.
1: Right, because I think what what happened with the 3.0 was the i from my understanding was that um the success of magic the gathering rewarded uh rules mastery so the it rewards studying cards all their interactions you know and it, it you will not be good at magic the gathering if you're not a student of
0: master the gathering yeah, you might be right. I I loathe Mass, Magic: The Gathering. Like when it first came out, we thought it was pretty cool. Uh, we ju- we just bought like a deck, and we just played the deck. That was it. We didn't we didn't even know until I went to what, whatever the last Gen Con in Milwaukee was. I think was the the first time uh, I encountered Magic players playing single color decks. Like, I didn't even know that was legal. It's like, what? What do you mean? You just took cards out of the deck, and then you took other cards and added them to the, and you just made whatever deck you wanted. This leading to of, chaos. What kind of cheating is that? Just play the deck you bought. Come on. So, uh, apparently, I, I was playing Keyflower, and everybody else was playing uh, Magic the Gathering. Uh, but yeah, once once I realized that that's what you needed to do, God, I hated it. Well, I they, hated they said it.
1: that's what 3.0 was taking that sensibility. Because it rewards mastery of the rules, like understanding all the combinations and how they work out and what gives you the most optimization. So the people who put all that investment in it get rewarded with characters that advance and very powerful. And the rest of us are characters that are chumps because we just.
0: Yeah, Uh, yeah, that that could well be that makes that makes sense to me, but I I never understood that instinct. It's kind of like people who play guitar hero. Right. There are people out there that are super, super good at Guitar Hero. And I'm like, if you put that many hours into learning how to play the guitar, you could actually play a real instrument. You know? <laughs> why, why, why are you mastering pushing buttons on a plastic toy? <laughs> that makes no sense to me. So that's that's kind of like Magic the Gathering. It's like, yeah, you're going to put that kind of time or, or Pokemon or any of those. You're going to put that kind of time into developing a high level of skill. For you know, if I'm going to spend time developing a skill, I at least want that skill to be transferable, right? It's like I'm not going to spend like hundred hours mastering a card game that gives me the ability to play that card game. I, that doesn't seem like a good right. use of time to me.
1: Well, but unless unless you go to tournaments and win money, then it then it is. But short of that, I
2: agree. Guitar Hero is not probably making anybody any money.
0: Who knows? Esports is weird. Maybe there's competitive, uh, there's competitive dance dance revolution out there or something. <laughs> I,
1: I, I yeah right. I'm, you know we've we've reached the age. I just I kind of shake my head. I'm glad it's out there. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not in any way disparaging. You know any that the fact that there's esports, but I still have my, I still have a hard time understanding it i don't know why i shouldn't have any more i don't know why i shouldn't have i should have the same hard time understanding regular sports and now i think about it, i guess i do too <laughs> i could never understand why are we all standing around <laughs> cheering for these people running around throwing balls around. i don't i don't get it so but other people do and i'm glad
2: but uh well, Ralph, I think we're hitting the, the time-space continuum. I think it's been a, an hour and a half. Yeah, kind of
0: uh, roamed all over there. So
2: It did. Well, it's, it's RPG Good rambling. conversation. There you
0: exactly. go. Exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, anyway, thanks for coming on, Ralph. Uh, yeah, a friend in need is a friend indeed. <laughs>
0: Yeah, whenever you're desperate for, uh, for someone, you know, you just call just <laughs> just on off. as a guest.
1: Oh, I, just to backtrack, you, you said the, the last year that Gen Con was in Milwaukee. I hear that phrase come up. I heard it come up a number of times. Or, or when Gen Con was in Milwaukee. I, I don't know what it would be, but I think there needs to be like a TV series. And about what these about geeks, and maybe kind of like Dairy Girls, but it takes place whatever during a time period that when when you know, Gen Con was in Milwaukee. <laughs> so <wonky>. Yes, exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah, but do you have any idea how they would have to get every detail perfect? Oh. or or the 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 fan rage would well, be Well, it wouldn't have to
1: be in Gen Con. It's just kind of like the Wonder Years. It's just that it's that time period. <laughs> and I, I don't even know what time period that is because I I, I I never went to Gen Con so uh, when it was in Milwaukee so I can't say that I'm an outsider I feel I feel bad <laughs> I too can't say yeah so anyway thanks again Ralph all uh, right gone again
0: we'll see you.